You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am Dr. Carrie Bedient uh, from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two scintillating and gorgeous partners, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hi, girl. Doing? Doing good. Doing great. Survived the heat of the summer, but you know, the way I was able to survive the heat of the summer is going in the nice cool movie theater to see Top Gun. And I think Susan said she's seen Top Gun. Oh my goodness, it was so good. Yeah, it was it was everything I hoped it would be. And more. And more. It actually had it actually had a big twist to it that I thought were really cool. And being the older one among us, I can vividly remember as I was in college, I remember watching the beach volleyball scene in the first Top Gun and thinking, wow, those guys are really cute. And I can so, tell you something about that scene. When I was in high school in German class, we had a dubbed version of Top Gun. And every time <laughs> we would have a substitute teacher, we would convince them to let us watch Top Gun in German. And we would just fast forward to the scene. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really don't need to understand German to understand the beach scene. Well, when I was talking to my husband about Top Gun, he's like, I don't remember the beach scene. I'm like, oh, I do. I remember it really well. And there was there was a new version of it. Although, you know, yes. now that I'm not quite as the Top Gun guys, you know, it's like, OK, well, I feel a little differently about it. But it was just a really good story and just, you know, kind of a feel good movie. And it was great. It, it was a great story. And, you know, no spoilers, but it was like they took they took the right amount of things from the first one oh, and yeah, and put them in the new one, but it still had its unique story. And, and they did things to make it moderately universal. And it was, it was just, it was a good story. Yeah. It, and I will say John Hamm was a really good addition to it too. He made that he made it really, really great as well. So they put John Hamm in Top Gun. Yeah. He was this commanding officer and he's really gruff and mean. And he was he was great. He was awesome. It was really funny. Huh. There's a lot of there were funny parts, there were sweet parts. And you know, one thing too I liked is there weren't a lot of extra cuss words. There really wasn't a sex scene. It was just kind of a good movie that you wouldn't mind seeing with, you know, different generations for the most part, you know? So, well, it was neat because before we went and saw it, I um, watched, rewatched the original with my daughter and two of my nieces. And it was, and there really, was a sex scene <laughs> it, it, and it was, but it was actually really interesting. We were watching in my living room and I'm sitting there with the remote and it took us probably a good 45 minutes to make it through the first 30 minutes of the original movie. So I could pause and explain certain things. <laughs> and oh, you're one of those, huh? <laughs> well, no, because they were, they kept on, they were like, Aunt Susan, Aunt Susan. <laughs> and so, but it was the, the one, you know, I was trying to explain them about, you know, this was presumably during the Cold War and different things like that. So explaining those types of things, just like this one kind of has modern day, you know, twists, but nobody is specifically named in that type of thing. But the one thing that kind of caught me off guard was 
So it's the scene at the beginning of Talk the Gun when they've all been selected and they're in the room and Tom Skerritt is explaining to them like what exactly Top Gun is. And I got, Aunt Susan, why aren't there any girls in that room? (laughs) I'm like, well, because in 1986, women weren't allowed in combat and they really weren't actually for probably about another 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, but it was one of those things that of all the things I expected to potentially have to explain, it, you know, it, I knew it was part of history and it was one of those like, wow, I just had to explain a part of, you know, women's history in the United States, yeah. my daughter and my nieces. And it was, it, it was kind of a neat moment. You know, it's, it's important to know where we've come from. So one last thing is my interesting side note, my ultrasonographer, her son-in-law is no longer a Top Gun pilot, but basically he's he's he was a pilot for three years in the military and he's been out maybe a couple of years. He's in the reserves, but he flew those kind of planes. And so I don't know how he, he's still in the reserves and I don't know how he got this job, but apparently in the new movie, Tom Cruise, you know, walks in and he has like a big book of like all this. He's talking to the recruits yeah, and he takes it and he's like, everything that you know in this book, you can just throw in the trash can. That was an authentic book from the military. He wanted one and the military said, no, sorry. He goes, but I want it. And so anyway, her, my ultrasonographer son-in-law got to literally fly that book out to California to give to Top Cruise for the, in the movie. So he could just throw it in the trash. <laughs> so, did he then take it back with him? Uh, I don't know what he did. Well, I'm sure he probably did because I, I assume it had secrets in it that they don't want everybody to know. So, yeah, they probably just used it as a prop for the movie and then probably took it back. But I didn't get that part of the story, Carrie. I'll have to find that out. Details. <laughs> we need details. details. We That's need right. details. Yeah. All right. Susan, what questions do you have for us today? Okay. We're going to do one question today. I am almost 38-year-old female with primary diagnosis of male factor infertility. Our first transfer in 2019 was a success. My second of a euploid embryo recently failed. I pushed for a receptiva diagnostic test alone with endometrio. I have a gut feeling about my microbiome and thought I should add the extra test to cover my basis. Receptiva DX came back at 2.15. My RE doesn't do the test often and said it's up to me if I want to treat it or not, as he had no clear recommendation. He said they they look for over 1.14, but 2.5 is the real threshold. Um, Lupron sounds terrible and sets me back two months. I've seen chatter about letrozole on boards. Is that better, quicker for my lower number? It took six months of delays to get to my failed transfer, and I'm discouraged at another delay, but don't want impatience to screw me over. So we do receptiva, and the tricky part about receptiva, just like all the biopsies that we do, nothing's written in stone. There's, you know, the reason we're so vague about the answers and you're already is just there's no randomized perspective studies that really guide what we do. I will say sort of the recommendation is that the idea is, is if you have BCL six and I didn't actually didn't remember what the threshold, usually our tests just say positive or negative, but if it's positive, then generally if you treat it, a couple of options, some people would do laparoscopy to look for endometriosis the rationale is that the BCL6 is strongly correlated with some level of endometriosis. So back in the good old days, we do a lot of laparoscopy, get rid of endometriosis. That's one option, but it is surgery, obviously, be laparoscopy. The other options, and I think this varies among reproductive endocrinologists, 
Again, I don't know that anything's written in stone, but generally what we typically do is do three months of Lupron and probably two months of those, you'll be having hot flashes. The idea is it kind of shrivels up and gets rid of the endometriosis. And the hope is it decreases the inflammation potentially that's in your endometrium. The second thing that we do is we add a combo of um, Femara or Letrozole with it for two months. So it's either Lupron by itself for three months or Lupron and Letrozole for two months is what we usually recommend. And so, you know, again, no randomized prospective studies. I can't say that I have strong data that supports that, but that's generally what's recommended in, in the literature that we do have. And so that's, that's what I would recommend too. And, you know, it's semantics. Who knows if your score is, I mean, my feeling is if you're kind of in that range, I would, I would recommend treatment. I mean, you did the test and you're kind of close to what positive would be. I, I do it. Yeah. I don't think that there's any huge downside to doing it. Um, I, you know, Lupron is an uncomfortable drug for, for many people to take, but that said, so is pregnancy. So is having a baby. So is being a parent. Um, none of those things are particularly comfortable. And so when you're looking at, okay, I only have a few embryos left to work with and I push to do this test. The rule of thumb in medicine is if you do the test, you got to be ready to act on the results. And these results are above the threshold. And so you act on them. Um, now, granted, that's not in stone. Anything be can be different. But if you weren't going to act on the results, then there's really no point in doing the test. So you might as well act on the results. Agreed. Cool. Okay. So today we are going to do female anatomy 101 um, because all of us have had some questions in our clinics recently that have driven home just how poorly people get educated on what the organs in their own body are. Um, and so in a perfect world, this would be done with pictures. That said, um, all of us are very good about describing, describing everything. And so let's go external to internal. So we'll start off with um, everybody imagining if you were laying back, had your feet up like you were at the gynecologist's and, you know, you've got your gynecologist kind of down between the legs and she's looking, looking straight ahead. What is she seeing? So generally at the beginning, the, the general area that she's looking at is called the vulva. Okay. You have the labia majora and the labia minora, which are essentially what everybody calls their lips. And that is the, the layers that we see kind of externally along the side. Okay. So Susan's looking at me now. So yeah. And one thing I was thinking as you were saying that, I remember one of our guests recently had mentioned about how people are very, a lot of her, I think it was a, a therapist, people are very worried and stressed about what they look like down there. And, you know, the bottom line is everybody looks a little different, just like our faces look a little different. We both have two eyes and nose and a mouth, but we look a little different. Same, same thing down below. And there's no like good looking vulva or ugly vulva. They're just different kinds. <laughs> and so like Susan said, there's a labia majora, which is the big fold of tissue and a labia minora, which is a smaller fold of tissue. Um, there's also a clitoris and the clitoris is kind of hard to identify, probably better by feel. If you know, if you're look, it's hard to really kind of see it. Um, but it's a real sensitive area, obviously, that helps bring about orgasm. And then just below that is a little hole, the urethra. And you really, it's really hard to see. Even when I'm looking and about to cast somebody, for some people, it's really hard to see their urethra, but that's below the clitoris. And then the opening to the vagina is just below that. And the urethra is where you pee out of. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then I should add in, and we all know this too, probably, but below the vagina is the opening, the rectum, you know, where you poop basically. And that's what the external part of your body looks like as you start to go in basically, and I'm trying to think of any, the hymen is always a mysterious area that people are always confused about and always ask about that. And it's, there's not really, in a lot of people, you can't see the hymen. It's just a ring of tissue that's on the inner vagina. It's just, just inside the vagina. And, you know, sometimes if you've had intercourse, the vagina, or the, the or a lot of times the hymen has already opened up a little bit. Some people, no matter how hard you look, you can't see that, see that ring of tissue. So, you know, people make a big deal about, oh, she must not be a virgin because we don't see her hymen or her hymen looks a certain way. We can't figure that. I mean, we even as gynecologists, we can't say that. Um, and just beyond the hymen is the vagina, which is just a tube, basically, that leads all the way to where your cervix is. So, Carrie, you're up next. <laughs> so the vagina is um, lined by mucous membranes. So it's the same kind of membranes that are on the inside of your mouth. So, you know, warm, wet, have their own ecosystem uh, in terms of there's a lot of bacteria that normally live there. Those bacteria the are is normally, normal, normal, yeah. normal, normal. Everybody has some of those. Yes. Please, <laughs> please do not steam your vagina in an effort to purify and cleanse it. It doesn't need to be purified. It doesn't need to be cleansed. It is a self-cleaning oven. Don't douche your vagina because it changes the ecosystem there. And usually for better, for worse rather than for better. Don't do that. Mm hmm. There is discharge that comes out of the vagina. Now, sometimes it is kind of clear and what we think of as serious looking. Um, sometimes it's very sticky. Sometimes it's very white. Some people have kind of a yellowish tinge to it. All of those things can be normal. And if you're really OCD about watching your vaginal secretions, you can oftentimes figure out where you are in your cycle by watching them because of the, the different consistency and texture of that discharge. But it is... Um, it's a, uh, what I think of as a distensible organ, meaning it can be small or it can expand to be much larger. And that's how it can accommodate having sex. That's how it can accommodate having a human being come out of it. Um, and, and it's, it's very stretchy. And one of the things that we often talk about with patients who are, have not been sexually active in a long time is, is kind of the concept of use it or lose it. And, and I don't mean lose it completely, but Something, if you're continuing to stretch it out, will stay a little bit more stretchy and a little bit more pliable. If you haven't used it in a long time, then it takes a little bit longer to gently stretch it out. You can definitely do it. It just, it takes a little bit longer. And one other thing about the vagina, and this is more the pathophysiology that what could abnormally happen with the vagina, and people kind of get a little bit confused about this too. They'll be like, oh my gosh, I have a yeast infection or I have a bacteria infection. And if you have a, you basically have yeast and bacteria in your vagina all the time. And when somebody has an infection, it really just means that they have a, an overgrowth going one direction or another. Bacteria are different than yeast. Um, and so you need different medicines to treat those. And that's why sometimes your gynecologist will say, well, if you've got this infection or this extra discharge, we need to come in and check you out before you just treat yourself over the counter. Because sometimes you may treat yourself for yeast when you really have a bacterial infection. And if you knock down the yeast even further, that makes the bacteria grow even more and can make it even worse. So it's always good if you're really concerned about having some issues to see your gynecologist and let them figure that out. For so it's always fair game to have a quick discussion of what you should or could put up in the vagina and what you really probably ought not to. 
So why don't you start us off, Carrie? <laughs> I'm holding back a laugh here. I'm like, okay. What, what's something you, find, Carrie. <laughs> what's something you shouldn't, shouldn't put in there? <laughs> so for example, when I was in residency, we had a woman come in and labor and she had placed a small bag of drugs up in her vagina. I would argue that's, you that's, ought not. That's not what you should put in your vagina. Okay, things that... That's number one on the list. Should, okay, let's start with things that should or could reasonably go in a vagina. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. A penis. We'll start the list and then we can grow from this. Okay. There can go a penis into the vagina. Okay. Obviously we're professional baby makers. We realize this happens. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Two speculums. We put lots of speculums in vaginas. Okay. Now, just so y'all know, we do have different sizes of speculums. Just as we have different sizes of people, we have different sizes of vaginas. Some of it has to be relates to your body size. Some of it has to do with intercourse and kind of how stretchy things were. Like we, we talked out wh whether you've had babies before. So we, we do actually try to match the speculum to the person. Um, vaginal ultrasounds, you go in the vagina. <laughs> So when you walk into your first appointment and you end up going into the ultrasound room and you see this big wand, a small portion of that big wand will likely go in the vagina. So I will, I will punt that to Gary for a little while. I think that the two of you turned six shades of scarlet <laughs> when I asked that question. And this is fertility docs uncensored. Uncensored. I know that's what I was just going to say. Anytime we bring up a topic like that. I'm pretty sure this is the reason why Carrie volunteered. <laughs> just wanted to make sure we covered all the bases. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay. So what should you not put in the vagina? So tampons are something fair, fair game for vagina. Um, when it comes to extracurricular things to put in the vagina, um, when you're talking about sex toys and things like that, um, anything, I guess, technically can be a sex toy. I would make an argument for something that's clean and they have all of the, the special soaps for that. Um, and would also make an argument for smooth with no sharp edges, just in the way you wouldn't stick something sharp in your mouth because it can tear up the side of your mouth. You wouldn't put something acidic in, um, would be very careful with that. So things like douching that Abby was talking about before, um, that disturbs your normal flora. Um, things like, uh, the list is, is huge of what we have encountered over the years, but. Well, I would, I would, some lubricants can be really irritating, even though, I mean, those can go in the vagina, but just make sure that it's truly a lubricant. Sometimes if it's like, lotion or just some other random lubricating thing, it can be really irritating to the vagina because the vagina and the vulva are really sensitive to a lot of things that the rest of your body may not be sensitive to. The other things, you know, around Valentine's Day, I always laugh because you see all these like, you know, sexual things to use like, like chocolate and chocolate's not a good place to put. I mean, vagina and chocolate, they don't mix because that makes a bacteria grow and that gives you a bacterial infection. So, no food substances, I would say, should go in the vagina. That's a, oh. that's a pretty safe <laughs> bet. And that carries all kinds of things. Because we in residency and stuff like that, we all heard about crazy food substances that people did put in their vaginas for multiple reasons. And none of them eventually were a great idea. True story. 
Um, also, no. it is impossible to <laughs> permanently lose something within the vagina. It is a blind ended pouch. You, nothing is going to get sucked up into your uterus. Nothing is going to get sucked up into your body. It may be a little bit more challenging to get out by yourself. Like you may need some help to get it out, but it cannot get lost in there. Like the, the cervical opening is itty bitty, teeny tiny. You cannot lose it. So that brings us to going further north. Um, what's up at the upper edge of the vagina? We have the cervix. The cervix wore away to the uterus. Then it looks like a little closed donut. Yep. That's exactly what it looks like. It has a little tiny mm-hmm. hole in it. And what's the function of the cervix? To let something go in or out. <laughs> and it, it really serves as a little cork most of the time. Um, you know, when you're not pregnant, it's a little bit of a filter for sperm, um, kind of filters the sperm. There's mucus there. Um, and really the mucus produced by the cervix, you know, we talk about hostile cervical mucus. And what that really means is the mucus at a time when you're not ovulating, when you're not making estrogen in mid-cycle is a lot thicker and sometimes will kind of kind of filter the sperm just a little bit. Now, it doesn't act as a a contraceptive barrier, but sometimes it may, we think it may help a little bit as a barrier against infection and things like that. Um, And pregnancy, it's kind of almost like a cork. It it acts as sort of a cork to keep the baby in because we know if the cervix gets really thinned out, then then women can actually dilate and deliver a baby before, you know, before the baby's due. So it, it acts as kind of a barrier to prevent the baby from getting infected and also to prevent the baby from basically falling out. So another important thing to know is that um, in the cervix, the cervix does have depth. So it's not just this part we see on the outside, but it's the low kind of the really lower part of the uterus. And so the outside of the cervix is called the external os and the inside part that's right there by the inside of the uterus internal os. So when we're talking about your external or internal os, especially when we're trying to do like an IUI catheter or catheter to your embryo transfer, we're, we're trying to bypass both of those parts of the openings, especially getting past that internal os can be a little tricky sometimes. And so you may hear your doctor mention those terms. And it's really interesting too, that the cervix is about the lower third of the whole uterus when you're not pregnant. When you're pregnant, obviously the uterus gets big and expands, but the cervix really needs to kind of maintain its shape and its thickness um, throughout the whole pregnancy until you actually go into labor. And that's the part when we talk about dilating, like Susan was saying, the cervix starts to get thin first. So it sort of flattens out and then it starts to stretch open. And that's what allows you to to deliver the baby. All right. So the cervix is the lower part of what organ? The uterus. The uterus. Yay. Go uterus. Um, And what is the primary function of the uterus? To carry a baby or make everybody's life hell once a month. True story. (laughs) No lies detected. So about how big is your uterus? Like a your pair, like, like a your fist, okay. A pair. And what are the two layers of essentially uterine tissue that we worry about the most or we think about the most? The endometrium, which is the lining of the uterine cavity, that's the part that we want really thick when people are trying to get pregnant. And the myometrium, which is the muscular part of the uterus. And that's the part that, you know, contracts when people are in labor. And it's just keeps the uterus kind of strong. It gives you the uterus its strength, basically. Yes, the muscle of the uterus. So when someone's having a period, what is that blood? The blood is the lining of the uterus, the endometrium that's getting shed in an organized fashion. 
So that's going to grow back each month, or at least it should in, in you know, normal anatomy. And then if you go up to the top of the uterus, so if you kind of imagine um, something that's pear-shaped, but an inverted pear, so the wider part is actually up top. What's at the corners of that wider part? That's where the openings to your fallopian tubes And Carrie, one thing before we move on, at the top of the uterus, I thought you were going to ask this question. You know, some people will say, I have an arcuate uterus, or I have some sort of misshapen area at the top of my uterus. And really what that means is that a normal uterus sort of is shaped like a triangle kind of inside, essentially. An arcuate uterus is like just a little bit of a dip there. Instead of the line being straight across from you know each side, it kind of dips a little bit. A septate uterus is sort of on the same spectrum. It's hard to say exactly when it stops becoming an arcuate and starts becoming a septate, but a septate is where there's actually a little bit of a division in there. And then, then sometimes the uterus, because uteruses can even be two separate structures, and that's that's called a didelphic uterus. But most of the time, arcuate uteruses, we don't worry too much about. They don't cause a problem for pregnancy. They're not clinically significant. Excellent. So up at the top, you've got the opening for the fallopian tubes. There's one on each side, one left and one right. As long as you have as a normally shaped a uterus, normal shape. if you only have a unicornate uterus, which is half a uterus, you'll only have one. And how long are the fallopian tubes-ish? Five to seven centimeters? Yeah, that's what I was, I was about to say, six inches, yeah. Somewhere in that range. And what's on the end of those fallopian tubes that we care about very much when we're talking about getting someone pregnant? <laughs> the fimbria. So it's, um, they're kind of the, the ends of fallopian tubes, fimbria means essentially finger, um, like projections, but it really kind of in healthy fallopian tubes, they look almost feathery and they're very, very delicate. And I always, I always say that, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to patients, if they have blocked fallopian tubes, they'll say, well, can you go in surgically and open them up? And I usually say, well, we can. But, you know, earlier in my career, we did that a lot more because the results with in vitro fertilization were not so good. You know, back in those days, you really needed your tubes a lot more. Now we tend to not go in surgically because it's really hard to restore the tubes not only back to their previous, the previous way they looked, but also the tubes are functional. They're really important. I, I sort of say they're almost like a vacuum cleaner that kind of goes over your ovary and kind of sucks the egg up because when you ovulate, the egg's actually released out into the body cavity. And miraculously, I don't know how, how the tube does it, but the tube's able to move around and suck the egg up because that's actually where fertilization takes place in the fimbria at the end of the fallopian tube. So it's really important that the tube is open, but it's also important that it functions correctly as well. It's more than just a pipeline. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's not, it's not like it's a stiff PVC pipe. It is more like a garden hose, but it's a garden hose that's skinny on one end and really wide on the other end. So that's the other reason why if someone's had their tubes tied, for example, where they've had a segment in the middle cut out, it's not like we're putting two ends of a garden hose back together and you can just duct tape around it. It's you've got a garden hose on one hand and you've got a huge pipe on the other hand. And when you try and put those two together, it's not an easy match up you you know you're actually a little bit more prone to get scar tissue and in a continued blockage because of it and there's all these little um, cilia on the inside of the tube and what those are those are tiny little hairs that help direct traffic and they help the egg and the sperm come together and then once you have an embryo in there they help them move down to the uterus so that's the other reason why just straight up opening a tube is not, not as functional as you might actually think it is because opening the tube will not um, help that function that Abby was talking about of those little cilia 
acting to bring the egg and the sperm together. And what is the uh, glorious endocrine organ that we all know and love and spend all of our time thinking about? The ovaries. Yay! And there's two of them, one on each side. How big are they? Yeah, I usually say like a walnut or a little bit bigger than a walnut usually. And some of it depends on the patient. There are some people who yeah. have bigger ovaries than other people. Um, we, we, we like bigger ovaries within smaller ovaries because that's really a reflection of how many follicles you have. Um, and our lives are a lot easier when you have lots of follicles, but we're happy to help somebody who doesn't. So, you know, we take, we take ovaries just like we take everything else. <laughs> yeah. And for those of you that are listening out there with PCOS, it really got diagnosed at the time of laparoscopy when phys- physicians would look in and they'd be like, look at these big cystic ovaries. And really those cysts are little, little tiny baby eggs that haven't grown. And so, you know, I find that even patients with PCOS as they age, they still, as a general rule, tend to have a lot more eggs. And like Susan said, that's the one thing we can't fix. If you don't have a lot of eggs, we can't fix that problem. So, so that's that's one situation where PCOS is not as bad as, as, it, as it might be. So what are the two functions of the ovaries? Um, they make hormones. So estrogen and progesterone. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you release eggs to create a baby. Yeah. All right. So going from outside to inside, you've got the vulva, which is the hair hair covered external part. And going from top to bottom, you've got the clitoris, the urethra, which is a hole the pee comes out of the vagina, which is the opening that babies come out of. And then the anus, which is the opening that poop comes out of. And then you've got the labia majora and then the, the lips or the curtains on the inside, which are the labia minora. Then you've got the vagina with the cervix at the top of it which is attached to the uterus, which has two layers. Myometrium is the muscle layer. Endometrium is the functional layer that is what an embryo implants in and what we shed every month when we have menstrual cycles. Then you've got the two fallopian tubes that are coming out the side that are, you know, roughly six ish inches long, give or take. Um, And then the walnut size ovaries up at the top, which are going to make hormones and make eggs. So that's, that's kind of, Anatomy 101. Um, and hopefully that helps. A picture is worth a thousand words. And so, you know, always be careful when you Google female, female anatomy because heaven knows what you're going <laughs> to end up with. You might get on some list that you can't get off of after that. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Be careful doing this at work because you never know what is going to come up. Um, but I hope that this is is helpful for folks as they are thinking about, okay, what are, what are the structures? And as your docs are using all these terms, because this is, this is where we spend our entire careers. Hopefully this makes it a little bit easier for you to understand what they are talking about. All right. So thank you very much for all of our listeners. Um, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, go to our YouTube page and subscribe there too. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a like and a hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. Don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.